Well, good morning, Lindsley Avenue. Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, we're glad that you're visiting with us. We've got quite a few of our number who are out of town this morning. are not able to be here with us. We're a little down from where we usually are. But we are also appreciative for those of you who are watching online, either right now at 10.38 a.m. or whether you're watching later on. We appreciate you joining us uh, here at Lindsley Avenue. This morning, we're going to have just, a, I hope, a little chat. I want the Bible to do most of the actual talking and explaining today. And it's about a topic that's a fairly fundamental topic, but it's one that, depending on who you talk to, we perhaps hear slightly different explanations. And the title I've given to it is, How Do I Become a Christian? You know, it's, it's something that we all, I think, being here this morning, all want to be tuning in this morning or later on, we want to be, how do I become a member of God's family? You know, I'm not necessarily a member of God's family when I'm two years old or five years old or 10. If I want to be a member of God's family, do I need to do anything? If so, what? What's the deal? What's the deal? So take a look with me. You know, if I want to be a God, member of God's family, if I want to be a follower of Jesus, what does that mean? God expect me to do anything? If so, what? Well, first, I think really critically important, we've got to realize that we've got a problem. We all have a problem. Now, we sometimes, as human beings, like to try to fix our problems. You know, some of us are problem solvers, and generally speaking, most of us as people recognize the problem and we want to try to fix it. And sometimes, you know, a problem might be a flat tire. Somebody might try to fix that in a way that perhaps is not the best. I mean, duct tape can do a lot of stuff. I don't want to get in that car because I have no idea how long that duct tape is going to hold. So we might try to fix the problem that way. Or in this case, this person had a flat tire and looks like they replaced it with a wheel from a Target shopping cart. I, I don't really would like to see that thing running, but uh, those are attempts to solve and fix problems. But sometimes our solutions are just not all that good. We like to have some approach to try to solve a problem, but they're not always the best approach. So a flat tire is something we should be able to fix. If you don't know how to fix a flat tire, you really should know how to do that if you're anywhere near a car. But there are other problems that we just cannot fix on our own. There are some uh, problems that we all share that when it comes down to it, you and I simply by ourselves on our own just cannot fix. And that one basic problem that I'm going to suggest to you today, the Bible tells us that we cannot fix on our own is simply sin. Sin is defined in various ways. It's, it's actually a military term where you're shooting an arrow or aiming at a target and you miss the mark. You know, if you have a target in the background, I still remember Boy Scouts, there would be a target and you see these little boys with bows about as big as they are trying to pull this thing back and shooting at the target. The last thing you wanted to be was anywhere in front of them because that arrow could go anywhere. And so if you're shooting at an, a target and you miss it, it falls short. It doesn't make it to the target. That's the word that is used in the New Testament for sin missing the mark and it's not here implied in the new testament as someone shooting an arrow it's the idea of 
behavior that is expected, behavior that is desired by God, and we don't live up to those expectations. We should do this. We fall short of that standard. We sin. And it's almost always related to the idea of doing something wrong. Wrong is this behavior that is not what God wanted. God wanted us to love. We ended up hating. We have sinned. We have engaged in doing something wrong contrary to what God wanted. Falling short of a standard. If you take that falling short of the mark and generalize it, if the standard is to do these things and I don't do those things, I have not lived up to the standard. It's also involved, involves the idea of wandering away from where I ought to be, getting lost. That's a phrase we often will use of people who are still living in sin. They are lost. You know, again, Boy Scout illustration, when we were hiking on the Appalachian Trail, you wanted to stay on the trail. Do not wander off. You might really get lost if you are not careful. It's a transgression going beyond. You can think again of a, a line in the sand, and if you step over that line, you have gone over where you were supposed to be. Doing things that we are told to do are all okay. God wants us to do those. But when we step across a line where God said, don't do something, we have transgressed. Trans is the idea of going across. And so we have done something gone beyond where we should have been. Now this can be all sorts of things. It can be things like lying, stealing, drunkenness, all sorts of choices that are not what God wants. When we make a choice on our own, when we choose to do something we want to do that is not something God wants us to do, by the definition of the word, we have missed the mark that God put in front of us. We have sinned. We have transgressed. We have fallen short of the standard that God wanted us to do. That is universal to the human condition. Every human being that is alive today or who has ever lived other than Jesus himself, I'll put that uh, exemption in there, has done something at some point in our in their lives and our lives that missed the mark. It is universal. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Uh, Paul here says, none or no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now that's a very pessimistic statement. And I think it's intended as the ultimate degree of pessimism. From time to time, people may do something that is good, but we all choose at least once, I'm certain much more than once, to do something that we want to do rather than what God wants to do. A little later in chapter three, Paul said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If our ultimate destination is to be, go home with God, to be with God, to be in the presence, if you will, of God's glory, when we have chosen to live for ourselves, when we have chosen to do what we want to do, rather than what God wants us to do, we are no longer uh, capable or it's no longer possible for us to enter into God's glory. 
It's also a voluntary choice. You know, this will date me, but you may remember the comedian that used to say, the devil made me do it. What was that? 60s or 70s? It's Flip Wilson. Uh, I, I was like six weeks old or something when I heard that. I'll barely include myself. No, I, I, that's a joke. But that's not true. The devil doesn't come up there and, and put your arm behind you and twist it and force you to go over and do something that you don't want to do. We all freely chose to do what we wanted to do at least once. James in chapter 1 says, Every man, every woman, everyone is tempted. When he or she is drawn away of his own lust, his own desire, her own desire, and enticed, the language there is of a, a, a lure that you would put on a hook, a lure that you put on a hook. And a fish will see the weekly worm, and it looks very attractive, not realizing that there's this sharp hook that the worm is hanging on. And the fish goes over and chops on the worm, and unfortunately for the fish, they're caught. Well, that's us. We see something that looks desirable, we see something that we want, and we go over and bite on it, we go after it, not realizing there's a hook. And that hook is the fact that by choosing what we want, when we have been told not to go there, not to do that, not to choose that, the hook is that we have separated ourselves from God because we have fallen short of the standard. Every single one of us, according to Paul in Romans, has done that at least once. And if we're honest, we probably couldn't count the number of times that we have chosen to do what we wanted to do in a circumstance when God would not have wanted us to do that. Look how it, he then continues. So we're drawn away out of our own lust and enticed, and then when lust has conceived, when we have bitten on that hook, when we've taken action based on the desires that were in our own heads, it brings forth sin. It's a falling short of the standard. It is wrongdoing. It's doing something we wanted to do when God had said no. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The underlying language that's used in the second part of this statement from James is talking about pregnancy. The, the word conceived certainly brings pregnancy to mind. And once pregnancy has occurred, once conception has occurred, the outcome will be the birth of something. And in this case, it's the birth of death. Death is the child that is brought forth from our own actions of choosing to do what we wanted to do. It may not be physical death, but it can be spiritual death, separation from God, the inability to enter in and be in God's glory, as Paul said back in Romans chapter 2. It's universal, it's a voluntary choice. The first time each of us chose to live for ourselves, we chose sin. And by choosing to live for ourselves, doing what we wanted to do, it has created a problem that we cannot fix on our own. We can't do it. Now, you might look at those tire solutions that we saw pictures of a few minutes ago and say, that really wasn't fixing the problem. You know, I'm not sure I want to ride on a tire fixed with duct tape. I'm not sure I want to ride on that wheel from a, a Target shopping cart on the back wheel. But it was an attempt to fix the problem. You can't even come up with an attempt to fix the problem. You can't pray enough. You can't visit enough sick people. You can't feed enough of the hungry. There is nothing that you and I can do on our own to 
to fix this problem that we brought on ourselves. We chose to do these things. We chose to do it. We saw it. It looked good. God said, don't. We did it anyway. We have separated ourselves from God. God hasn't gone anywhere. We are the ones that, as the language use suggests, wandered away. We veered off. God remains. We realize, hey, I have separated myself from God, but when we're looking for a way back, there isn't one to be found that we can do on our own. Nothing we can do to make it right. I know I'm repeating myself right here, but it's very, very important that we understand that there's nothing we can do to fix it. We can't. We just can't do nothing. Nothing. But there is good news. Great news. Fabulous news. And that news is God's grace and mercy. We can't fix the problem. God is the one that had to fix the problem. And God has chosen to fix the problem that we created for ourselves. The whole idea of election of choice is in many ways not so much our choice whether we have a choice of the matter or not but before the world ever began God chose to provide a way to bring humanity back to him seeing ahead of time that every single human being other than Jesus himself would choose to do what we wanted to do and would walk away from the home that God really wants for us to have with him God chose ahead of time before the world was ever in existence. I'm going to send my son to pay the price for these mistakes everybody has chosen. When you look at Ephesians 2, this is where the reading came from this morning. Paul here begins, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. When we are sinners, when we are sitting in a situation of sin, when we, as all of humanity, have been at one point in the past, if not right now, when we are sitting in that circumstance, we are dead. We have sinned, we have separated ourselves from the life and love of God, and we're sitting in our own mess, if you will. Following the course of the world. All you got to do is look at the world, and you can tell that the world is really hurting right now. There's hatred. There's all sorts of envy. There's injustice. The world is almost always, almost always in a sorry state like that, following the course of this world because most of the world is still going after what they want, being enticed by the things that they're seeing that look good. They chase after it. They keep biting that book over and over and over again. Another illustration from Boy Scout. Another illustration from that. We had a fishing contest, the boys did, and they were throwing the hooks, you know, with the little worms, right, out into, off the shore of the lake. One boy kept bringing a fish that he caught. He was catching five or six times as much as everybody else. How is this little young man here, who's now a married father, how does he keep catching so many fish? And it turned out he would show us the fish and instead of turning it loose, put it in a little pool he had made over turned it loose in the pool and kept catching the same fish out of this tiny little pool that he made. So I call that cheating. But he certainly was catching a lot of fish. Don't you think about it. That fish kept doing what? Biting the same hook 
over and over and over again. It sure looks like a fish experiences pain when they bite that hook, but the fish kept eating the bite, trying to eat that worm and biting the hook over and over and over again. And we look and say, what a foolish fish. Who's the real fish every day? You and I. Because despite the fact that the last time we bit that worm, it hurt or we caused hurt to somebody else, we keep doing it over and over and over again because we are dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of the world. And we can't fix the problem on our own. Left to ourselves, we're going to keep biting that hook just like that little fish was doing. And notice he says again, we who were dead were among those we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By the nature that was in ourselves, choosing to live for sin and living to do what we wanted to do, the wrath is the wrath of God because of the choices that we had made. We were destined for wrath like all of mankind. Not a real positive statement right there. Every single one of us, notice one important thing in this passage, look up at the screen. You were dead. That's past tense. That's past tense because there is fabulous news. Look at what comes next. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together in Christ, made us alive together in Jesus. We couldn't solve this problem, but God did. How did God do this? How did God solve this problem? By his love for us. I can't fix it. I couldn't fix it. No one could. Only God could fix this problem when he didn't have to fix it. And that fix required the sending of his son. Look at John 3.16. God loved the world. Stop right there. That world is just like the world that Paul was talking about in Ephesians. All of us dead in our trespasses and sins, chasing after that worm on the hook, making choices over and over and over again that were sinful choices in rebellion to God. But God loved those people. God loved you. God loved me so much. Even when I was dead in my sins, he loved me so much, he loved you so much, that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. How do I become a Christian? The Bible says step one is to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that God sent into the world so that I would have the ability to not die in my sins. That the death that I was headed for would be changed into life with God because of believing in Jesus that I would not die. Step one. Now, some of our religious friends and neighbors will stop right there. I want us to see what the Bible continues to say. Look at John 20, verse 31. These things were written in the Gospel of John that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Messiah that was sent into the world to save everyone from our own 
choices. The Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. We must believe that we are sinners. You need to understand that those statements in the book of Romans chapter 3 that we just read are talking about you and me. They're talking about each of us, that we are sinners and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to save us from our own choices. We're also told in Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that he will forgive our sins. If step one is the only step, then this is telling me something extra that doesn't seem to fit. The word repent is also a military term. It means an about face. Think of a column of soldiers who are marching in one direction. And the person in charge says about face. And everybody turns and starts marching the other direction. When we are repenting, we are turning around so that we are now headed toward God. It requires a change in our behavior. Rather than continuing to be enticed by the desires that we have, by the lust that we have, by the worm on the hook, if you will, we have to turn around. When we were dead and living in our sin, living for ourselves, we created a problem we could not solve. God sent his son. son to live and die so we would not have to pay the price for our choices and death. But God demands that we quit missing the mark, that we quit living so that all we're doing is chasing after what we want so that we can start living the way God wants us to in love for God and love for our neighbor. Step one is to believe in Jesus. Step two is to repent, to change our lives, to live for God. If I say I believe in Jesus, but I hate my brother, Remember, we've talked about that from 1 John. We lie. If I say I love God, but I still live for myself, I will suggest to you we lie. And do not practice the truth. We need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God that he came to save me from my own circumstances I created. But we have to start aiming our life back to God by repenting, by having an about face, in the choices that I make each and every day. We also need to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. There needs to be some sort of statement that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think it's pretty clear you have to say it out loud. You can't say it by your, your actions and your life. But we need to tell people that Jesus is the Christ and tell them what he's done for us. Acts 8.37, when you have this black man the Ethiopian that Philip encounters out in the desert. He tells him about Jesus, and as they're riding along, he says, See, I believe here is water. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip says, If you believe, you may. And the Ethiopian, the black man, says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There is a statement that I believe what I have heard, and I'm going to start a change in my life leading to being back with God. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, we read Paul writing, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's two parts of that. If you believe that 
with your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, but also if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one is confessed and is saved. Step one, believe that Jesus is the Christ. Step two, you have to turn your life around, start living for God instead of living for yourself. Step three, you need to confess your belief. You've got to say something. You've got to make it verbal. There's a step four as well. There's a step four as well. Look at Acts chapter two, verses 36 through 37. Peter speaking here to these people that in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost said, all the people of Israel then are to know for sure that this Jesus whom you crucified is the one that God has made Lord and Messiah. Now he's talking to a group of Jewish people nearly 2,000 years ago. Don't think that it's only those individuals that caused the crucifixion of Jesus. I did. Because I live for myself, I am a cause of the fact that Jesus was on that cross. If you have ever chosen to live for yourself, you are also a cause. Every bit as much as these Jewish people here on the day of Pentecost. Every single one of us that chose to live for ourselves. Every single one of us that fell short of the expectation that God has for us is the reason Jesus was on the cross. And he tells these people here, as much as he tells us today, we need to know that this Jesus that we contributed to his crucifixion is the one that God raised from the dead and is now set up as Lord and Messiah. When those people nearly 2,000 years ago heard that, they were deeply troubled. They understood, I did that. I did that. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? Now there's a reason this is important because they understood that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. They believed that God had made Jesus the Lord and Messiah, but they still asked, what do we need to do? There is a step four. There is a step four. Look what Peter tells them. Peter said to them, each of you must turn away from your sins that was step two. We talked about that. Repenting, having an about face. Stop living for yourself and start living for God. Turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins will be forgiven. I don't know how to read that in any other way than if I don't do that, my sins won't be forgiven. Why would Peter say this? You need to turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins will be forgiven if believing in Jesus led to my sins being forgiven without doing anything else. If step one was where I needed to be. Now what is this word baptizing? There are a few words in the Bible that aren't translated into English. They were simply, we, the word here is anglicized. That's where you take a word in a foreign language and you change the spelling, but you kind of leave it in the original language. The language of Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in 2,000 years ago, used the word baptizo right there. And you can see baptize looks a lot like baptizo. It isn't translated. What did the word mean? It meant to immerse, 
to plunge, or to dip. It's the word used if you had a big bowl of dipping sauce. When you take a piece of a tortilla or a piece of bread and you, everybody wants to dip in a big old thing of sauce. I'm getting hungry already. You take that and you whoosh, you dip it into the sauce. If you were to jump into a swimming pool, if you were to put somebody under the pool and back up, that's this word. So what he's talking about is every one of you must turn away from your sins. It's about face time. And you need to be immersed, plunged underneath water so that your sins will be forgiven. Once you believe, you need to repent about trace. Start living for God instead of living for yourself. And you need to be baptized, immersed in water so that your sins will be forgiven. That's what Peter told these people 2,000 years ago. And he's telling me that because I am just as guilty as any of those people ever were. In Acts 22, verse 16, Paul, over in Acts 22, has been recounting how he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and explaining to this crowd of Jewish people who at first had really wanted to, to mess with him really badly, He's explaining what had happened and the person that came to him to tell him what he needed to do said to him, now why do you wait? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul had seen Jesus. Jesus had told him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuted. Do you think he believed that Jesus was God's chosen Messiah at that point? I have a suspicion if any of us saw the heavens open and Jesus speaking to us, we would certainly believe he was the son of God at that point. But at this time, he is still told that he needs to go do something else. He needs to get up. Don't wait around anymore. It had been three days of wondering what on earth he needed to do now. And he's told to go and be baptized, to be immersed and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, there's no magic in the water. He's not told to go get a bar of lava soap. You remember that? You could scrub and get anything off of you with that. Almost felt like sandpaper. The water's not some kind of liquid sandpaper that's going to scrub dirt or actual guilt off of you. It's simply doing what God has said to do. God is the one who forgives. And these verses say he does that when we are buried in water. Dying to our old way of living. Dying to the way we used to live and being raised to walk as a new person forgiven. The illustration is quite dramatic because taking someone who has been living in a sinful situation, plunging them underneath the water and then raising them up again to walk in a new life is what Paul says here in Romans chapter 3, 6 verses 3 and 4. He says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Don't you know that? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When someone who believes in Jesus understands that I am a sinner and that God sent Jesus to die so that I would be able to live, when that individual has said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When that person has committed to, I'm going to do my best to stop walking after my own sins, to stop chasing after my own desires, and to turn around and begin living for God. When they are then put beneath the surface of the water, 
The moment they are raised up, Paul says, the Bible says they are a new person. Their past sins have been forgiven and they are ready to live every day thereafter as a child of God so that they will be a member of his family. Mark 16, 16, one other verse, Jesus right before he went back to God said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved and whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's very, very difficult to explain away the verses and the statements that are made about baptism, connecting it with becoming a new person. I don't know why the effort's made that way. Because the Bible's very clear that if you're going to become a member of God's family, there is an immediate process. Do I worry that somebody has confessed after they have repented? No, not at all. I'm not something, get it done. Understand what God did for you. Believe in the fact that as Jesus was sent to die so that you could live, commit to turning your life around, confess the fact that you understand what God did for you, and die to your old ways and be raised to walk as a new person. As we enact dying to our past lives, God forgives our past sins and we are raised up to live as a new person, a member of God's family. So, does that mean that we are suddenly perfect? No, not at all. Does that mean that if we sin after we become a member of God's family, that we've been forgiven, there's nothing remaining for sin, we are hopeless because we have done something wrong after we've been immersed? Not at all. It means that we are part of God's family. God is our Father who loves us and will forgive if we come back to Him. We do that the way they Paul and others suggested in the New Testament, by praying to God that He will forgive us. It can be done in private by yourself, or it can be done in public. It depends on what the mistake was. If I have had a thought to myself, if I've done something that's not very well known, I can commit to God that I want to do better. I can ask to be forgiven, and again, about face, turn away from what I was doing. If I've done something that was seen in public by lots of people, it will bring potential shame and uh, bad uh, reflection upon God's family. That's where public confession of sin is made. You come and you say, I'm so sorry, my family. I have done terrible things. I've done something really bad. Pray with me to God so that he will forgive me. It all depends on what was done. There are ways to come back to God even after becoming a member of his family. So step one, Believe in Jesus. John 3, 16 is very clear on that. Step two, repent. Turn your lives to God. Step three, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Step four, be baptized so that God will forgive your sins. Where are each of us on these steps? Where are we? Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus is the chosen one that God sent to live his life perfectly, to pay the price so that I would not have to? If I believe that, am I still chasing after the worm on the hook? Am I still living the way I want to live and I don't really seem to care that God wants me to change what I do? Have I ever said in front of other people, I do believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son? Have, do, I, do I 
believe those things? Have I been making effort to live the way God would want me to be? But I never actually was immersed so that I could reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The point that the Bible says God forgives my sins. Are you a member of God's family today? What do you still need to do? That choice is the choice you have right now to make as together we stand and sing.